to preach a sermon here in a minute in Luke chapter 4. The whole thing is today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. But he was Jesus and I'm not. So let's open our Bibles to the gospel of Luke to chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 is our text. We're studying through the gospel of Luke. We're at verse 14 of chapter 4. We're going to read down into verse 30. Jesus returns to Nazareth and preaches a notable sermon. Listen as I read the text. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing." So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. And then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they had heard these things, were filled with wrath They rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this word. We're always excited about your word, Lord, but more so, I think, when it's a story about Jesus, when we see him speaking and acting and interacting with the people. Lord, we're here to interact with Jesus Christ. We believe that he's here in our midst today. He promised he would be. Lord, you are here. You you were here in the worship, Lord. Be here in the word that we may know that we've been uh, ministered to, Lord, in your power and by your grace. We pray these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Jubilee is a word we need to become familiar with if we are to fully appreciate Jesus' first sermon here in Luke. Among the Jews, every seventh year was a Sabbath year in which they were to let their land rest by not planting their crops. The year following every seven times seven years, or every 50th year, was the year of Jubilee. During this semi-centennial celebration, the land was to rest and no crops were planted. 
All mortgaged property reverted back to its original ownership. All debts were remitted, and all who were slaves were set free. Jesus took the scroll and read a passage from Isaiah. It was a passage well known to his audience. It very obviously described a year of jubilee, also called here the acceptable year of the Lord. But the Jews had come to understand that the jubilee in the Isaiah passage was a very special one. It wasn't simply a year-long celebration after which they would return to their normal life. It described the coming of their Messiah to establish the kingdom of God on earth, to establish an endless jubilee of the Jews. Jesus read the text, and then he took a dramatic pause. All eyes were fixed on him. And then he simply said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jubilee was here. The Messiah had come. The kingdom was at hand. Jubilation ought to have been the response. Curiously, it was not. Homicide was the response, or at least attempted homicide as they sought to throw Jesus off the cliff. The Jews missed their jubilee. Jesus indicated his invitation would expand beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. It did. And today, you and I are still being invited to enter our own personal spiritual jubilee in a relationship with Jesus Christ. We'll organize our thoughts around two points. Number one, today you can choose to celebrate jubilee with Jesus. Or number two, today you can show contempt for jubilee with Jesus. Let's take a look first in verses 14 through 21. Today, you can choose to celebrate Jubilee with Jesus. Now, in our last study, we left Jesus in the wilderness. Between defeating the devil and his return to Nazareth here, a great many things occurred. He performed his first miracle at a wedding in Cana by turning water into wine. He went to the temple in Jerusalem and overturned the tables of the money changers for the first time. He met with Nicodemus at night and told him he must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. He spoke with a Samaritan woman by the well, told her all the things that were going on in her life, and evoked a revival in that area. And he healed a nobleman's son. These events and some others are recorded by John in his gospel in chapters 1 through 4. Luke only summarizes them by saying in verses 14 and 15, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now, Jesus did many amazing things like the ones I just listed. Luke emphasized that he taught in their synagogues. We are too quickly distracted by the miraculous, and we can forget the power inherent in God's Word as it is simply taught. One of the lessons in the story we read this morning will be that the people wanted to see miraculous signs and wonders. And yet here was Jesus saying, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And they thought, well, sure, that's great, Jesus, but how about some water from, wa- or from wine from water? That would be cool. And we always seem to be drawn as human beings to these kinds of tricks. And, and, you know, we need to figure out once and for all that Jesus is not David Blaine or David Copperfield. He's not on display that way. He's, he's the living Word of God. 
And when he speaks through the word of God, there is a power inherent. And another lesson, of course, if teaching was Jesus' emphasis, well, what should our emphasis be? It should always be on the teaching and the proclamation of the word of God. Now, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. Everything Jesus did involved the Holy Spirit. Luke constantly brings out this to encourage you. Jesus was and is God, but he was acting as a man submitted to God, refusing to use his divine power, simply walking in the power of the Spirit by the leading of the Spirit. Thus, he becomes an example of what God can do through any man or woman who submits to God and is led and empowered by the Spirit. Jesus would tell his disciples in the Gospel of John, greater works than mine you will do. And I don't know that we believe that. But we need to see Jesus not as God performing these works, though he was God, but as a man submitted to God, filled with the Spirit, born of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, baptized of the Spirit, so that we can enter into the awesome power that He has available for us. Then in verse 16, so He came to Nazareth where He had been brought up, and as His custom was, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. The temple at Jerusalem was the center of Jewish religious life. When the Jews were exiled, and couldn't worship at the temple, they established local synagogues. Any place there were at least 10 male Jews, there was a synagogue meeting on the Sabbath day for instruction and prayer. Now, there's a phrase here that really caught my attention this week. It's the phrase, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. Jesus attended synagogue every Saturday of his life. It's the equivalent of our going to church every week. Now, you and I are here this morning, and, and we're attending church, and so this, this isn't really for us, but it's instructive. A lot of believers don't regularly attend church, and you know a lot of them. Uh, they're dear, sincere Christians, but they just can't seem to make that commitment to, uh, to a local fellowship or to go to church. But Jesus did. Now, I've heard a lot of complaints over the years about why folks don't attend our church or some other good church here in town. You've heard them too if you've talked to your friends. Things like the message was boring. It can be. Or I just don't get anything out of it. I guess that's possible. Or I've heard all that before. Could you even imagine having Jesus in your service? The closest I ever came to this, uh, Don McClure asked me one time to lead a small devotion at a pastor's conference up at Mount Hermon, maybe 30 or 40 guys, but there was the potential that Chuck Smith would be there, <laughs> Pastor Chuck. You know, Pastor Chuck is, is just the greatest guy, but I always feel like he has a word of knowledge about me, <laughs> that, that just when he looks at you, he knows what you're thinking, and it can't be good. And so I prayed him out of that meeting, and uh, he, had, he, he couldn't be there, and I was blessed. But anyway, could you imagine having Jesus in your service? If there ever was a person who could say, that was boring, it would be Jesus, or didn't get anything out of it. Can you imagine him going home after synagogue as a boy telling his mother, Mary, you know, Mom, I just don't get anything out of synagogue, or 
I heard it all before. When did you hear that, son? Oh, before the foundation of the world. <laughs> when I was looking down the corridors of time and I saw myself here at the synagogue service and I knew what the speaker was going to say and that... <laughs> or can you imagine him going home and being, uh, you know, I don't know if it's... Is it unspiritual to be frustrated? Because if it is, then Jesus could never have been frustrated. But just go with me a little bit. And could you imagine him being a little bit troubled and his mom saying or his dad saying, what is it, son? He goes... You know, that message, it was all about me, and they missed the whole thing. Uh, you know, I, 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 later on, I'll tell the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and they'll get it, you know? And I mean, can, seriously, I mean, this is, this is what was happening. Every week of his life, Jesus went to synagogue. If ever there was a person who didn't need synagogue, didn't need instruction, didn't need any of that, it would be the Lord. You know what it teaches us? His faithful attendance teaches us that you don't go to church for yourself. You don't even go for your family. Now, those are good things. You know, if I always tell people with young families, man, get to church, get your kids in the Calvary Kids Club. You are blowing it if your kids aren't in Sunday school and midweek Bible study and all that. That is all true. Uh, you know, and it'll lighten my counseling load years from now when your kids are teenagers. But you don't go to church for those reasons. You go to church for God because God is there. He wants you there, and He speaks to you there. And, and, and you know, if the message is boring, He can still speak to you. If you've heard something before, He can still speak to you. Uh, you know, if there's always a way that the Lord can minister to you. And so, I'm glad you're here. It makes my job easier. And you probably know some people who just, they're just not into the habit anymore. Just share with them and get them to go to church. Maybe not this church. Maybe another church that they used to go to. You know, we're not just, we don't have membership, so we're not trying to build our membership. But, uh, you know, the Lord, he loves to meet with his people and be in their midst. Now, Jesus stood up to read. It might help us if we understood the order of service in the synagogue because there was one. It went something like this. They would sing from the Psalms, then they would recite Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 9, the passage called the Shema. The Lord our God is one Lord, and it goes on. And then Scripture would be read, first a passage somewhere from Genesis through Deuteronomy, and then a passage from one of the prophets. Then there would be a word of instruction, what we might call a teaching. And then the service would end with the pronouncing of the famous benediction from Numbers chapter 6, the Lord bless thee and keep thee, the Lord make his face to shine upon thee and be gracious unto thee, the Lord lift up, oh, you ladies, you had your chance, his countenance upon thee and give thee peace. If there was a visiting teacher, he would be called upon to read the portion from the prophets and then give a word of instruction. Having heard all Jesus had done in Galilee, the hometown crowd was anxious to hear from their hometown hero. And so in verse 17, he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. We can't be sure if this was the regular reading for that Sabbath day or if Jesus found the portion by looking for it. It's likely that it was the regular reading for that day, an amazing providence that the Holy Spirit brought Jesus to that synagogue on that particular day. 
It is often true today that the Holy Spirit brings just the right message for you at just the right time. Uh, and and it's, it's always an amazing thing when you think of calendars and where people are going to be and all the possibilities that you would come at just the right time to hear a particular message. At any rate, he opened the scroll and he read. The audience recognized the passage as describing a very special jubilee year of the Lord. It was describing the coming of their Messiah to establish a kingdom on earth. They had also heard that Jesus had been performing miraculous works, and so they were piqued and excited. I bet packed out that day. What would Jesus say? Verse 20, then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. Scripture was always read standing for respect to the Lord, and then the teacher would sit down to give his instruction. Verse 21, he began to say to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Whoa, no one expected that. Isaiah's speaker was the anointed one. He was the Messiah upon whom would rest the Spirit of God. When Jesus said the scripture was fulfilled, he was unmistakably claiming to be their Messiah, the one prophesied in the Old Testament. Now, the Jews, you remember, were an oppressed people subjected to Roman government. They understood their Messiah would come and fulfill Isaiah's words, but they assumed he would first have to deliver them from the Romans politically and militarily. In other words, they did not see how Jubilee could come until Rome had left. Jesus plainly stated that the deliverance, the liberty, the jubilee of these verses was immediately fulfilled in their hearing today, right now, it's happening as I'm here. Now, the Jews knew jubilee had a symbolic meaning, but they didn't realize it had a deeper spiritual meaning. It wasn't political liberty they needed, but a personal liberty. They didn't need to be set free from Rome as much as they needed to be set free from their own sin. To summarize Isaiah, they were poor, blind captives who were oppressed and brokenhearted. Everyone is poor. You have no currency, nothing of any value by which you might purchase eternal life. Ever been someplace where your currency was worthless? Where, where you, you know, maybe in a foreign country where you I had some... American Express travelers checks one time in the Philippines, and, and, and they wouldn't take them because they didn't have something on them that they were looking for, and I, they were worthless to me at that time. And I really wanted a mango shake. <laughs> it's about the only thing I ate over there. But anyway, it, and it was just worthless. From a spiritual standpoint, no one has any currency that works in heaven, nothing that you can offer by way of purchase, and so all of us are poor. Everyone is blind. First of all, you're born spiritually dead, and so you can't see anything. And then you're born spiritually dead into a world of darkness. And so you're doubly blind if that's possible. Everyone is held captive. You inherited a sin nature, and to some greater or lesser extent, you are a slave to your own selfishness. Thus, you are oppressed and brokenhearted. Oppression external, brokenheartedness, more internal. Outwardly, life makes no sense. It presses in on you with its afflictions and adversities. 
you try and go through your whole life never having to ask why. Just let's get through life, let's enjoy life, let's do what we do, and then something is going to happen sooner or later. Some illness, some injury, some affliction, some adversity, some disaster that is going to cause you to ask why. What's going on? What is life all about? And it seems as though life is pressing in on you. It's oppressive. And, and before you're a Christian, you, you can't answer that question. And, and it leaves you uh, in, in a terrible state. Philosophers struggle with that question for centuries, and they come up with all kinds of lame ideas. When I was attending the University of California, Riverside, the current popular thinking was existential philosophy, which teaches that everything in life is absurd. Nothing has any meaning. Hey, right on. That's great. So why not just kill yourself? Oh, no, you don't want to do that. Why not? I don't know, but you don't want to do that. And so you make meaning for yourself. It's, it's ridiculous nonsense. But we ask that question, why? Because we sense this affliction and we don't have the answer for it. Then you're brokenhearted. Inwardly, you are empty and alone. Not brokenhearted in the sense of a boyfriend-girlfriend thing, but broken in the sense that your heart is not complete. It's not put together right. There's, we sometimes say there's an emptiness in your heart. And we do everything we can to fill that. We try every fleshly lust or fulfilling every appetite. And, you know, whether it's, the, you know, through our career or through altered states of consciousness or these different things, trying to fill that void in our heart. But it remains an empty, hollow place until Jesus comes. Then you hear the gospel. You're set free from sin and selfishness. Now you serve your creator. You become rich in faith. Your eyes are opened and enlightened to spiritual truth. Your heart is mended. And all of your circumstances can come into a heavenly perspective because you know that all things work together for good to them that love the Lord and are the called according to his purpose. You can, with Job, say things like, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Naked I came into the world. Naked I'll go out. Those kinds of things. And, and your circumstances, yeah, they're pressure, they're, but okay, I belong to God. And I'm just going to walk with Him and trust Him. It makes all the difference in the world. And so you experience, in a sense, your own personal jubilee with Jesus. It doesn't last a year or a thousand years. It, it lasts for eternity. The gospel is the most acceptable message you will ever hear. It is also rejectable. In verses 22 through 30, today you can show contempt for Jubilee with Jesus. The people who heard this first short sermon rejected Jesus. Verse 22, all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth, and they said, isn't this Joseph's son? Now, I put an emphasis there because I think the sentence makes an important parallel comparison. On the one hand, Jesus was well known to them, having grown up among them. But on the other hand, his words were anointed, filled with the grace of God, something they didn't expect to come from someone familiar with them who had grown up in their midst for the past 30 years. And so there was this, this dilemma in their minds, what, what, what should we do? Should we recognize that God is visiting us or, you know, but isn't this just the carpenter's son? What finally swayed them to reject the Lord? Well, they were not so interested in words as they were in works. And Jesus, as he so often did, 
began to talk to them about what they were thinking. Uh, and, you know, a lot of more liberal uh, theologians and just people in general, they always say that, you know, we need to follow the words of Jesus, and Jesus said some really wonderful things. Yes, he did. Everything Jesus said was wonderful because he was wonderful. But he's going to say something now in the next few verses that is exposing their hearts, telling them what they're thinking, why they're thinking it, and what's going to happen in their future, and they're going to try to kill him. Jesus always spoke the truth in love. But, you know, people always, they just want to take certain words of Jesus that aren't too uh, hard on them. Oh, let's just love everybody, sure. I love that uh, line, the Beatles said, all you need is love, and then they broke up. It's kind of a pop culture thing, but it's true. And Jesus is going to expose their hearts and tell them the truth. And so he says in verse 23, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. Though raised in Nazareth, Jesus had set up headquarters in Capernaum. He did many mighty works there. There was a kind of jealous resentment from the people of Nazareth, kind of an undercurrent. Hey, you're a Nazareth boy. You're a Hanford boy. What are you doing up there in Riverdale setting up shop, you know? <laughs> a positive comment about Riverdale this week. And so they were jealous. Physician, heal yourself was a popular first century saying the Jews used to challenge someone to live up to their hype. In Jesus' case, they wanted him to perform the works they had heard of, like the healing of a nobleman's son or turning water into wine. When Jesus said, no prophet is accepted in his own country, it had a little more sting than it does for us. We sometimes use this phrase, and I'll talk about that in a minute, but the Jews really would be stung by this because it referred to the well-documented biblical fact that the Jews often rejected their prophets in the generation in which they ministered. Oh, these first century Jews might respect Isaiah. They might think Isaiah was one of the great prophets and, and be listening to him. But back in his own time, when Isaiah ministered, tradition has it that the ancestors of these same Jews put him in a hollow tree and they sawed him in half while he was still alive. And one of the most presentable facts in all of the Old Testament is that the Jews rejected their prophets in the era in which they prophesied. And so Jesus is unmistakably saying, I'm like these Old Testament prophets and you're like those Old Testament Jews. And so he's not winning people over to his side by, you know, kind of uh, uh, syrupy talk here. He's telling them the way it is. We sometimes quote this phrase, no prophet is accepted in his own country, to indicate that our ministry is not appreciated or recognized if we're too familiar with people. Well, God can use anyone, but sometimes it bothers us when he does. Uh, we just don't like it for one reason or another. Maybe the person is younger than us, they have less life experience, or they're somehow different from us. And so it just rubs us the wrong way that God is using them. Maybe we're just jealous that God isn't using us or hasn't gifted us in that way. We need to look for the evidence of God's supernatural empowering in a person's life and not be blinded by our own natural judgment. We can fall into this same trap today. 
In the New Testament, Paul the Apostle had to write to young Timothy, this fantastic pastor at the church of Ephesus, and he said, Timothy, don't let the people despise your youth. You're gifted, you're called to be there, you're anointed by God, but the people in his congregation, they would leave at the end of church and, you know, hang out in the coffee shop and say, hey, you know, Timothy, he doesn't know what he's talking about, he's too young, hasn't been through enough or whatever, and so Paul said, hey, okay, yeah, there's some things you probably can't talk about with real experience, but that beside the point, you're anointed by God, you're called by God, don't let anybody despise your youth. And on our end, we need to just step back and say, what is God doing? What is God doing here? Not what do I think He ought to be doing or what would I like Him to do through me or through someone else. What is God doing? And let's recognize that. Now, Jesus referred His hearers to a couple of Old Testament uh, prophets and incidents in their life. He says in verse 25, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Elijah and Elisha, of course, among the most respected prophets among the first century Jews. But in their own time, the Jews were a disobedient people. The two episodes recalled are great stories to study in and of themselves, but their importance here is that God sent Elijah and Elisha to minister outside of Israel to the Gentiles. Jesus used them to illustrate that if the Jews rejected him, God would send him beyond Israel to the Gentiles. Now, you don't even know how repulsive this thought was to a prejudiced first century Jew. The Jews didn't have much respect for Gentiles. Even though the Old Testament taught that the nation of Israel was to be a light and a lamp to all the nations of the world, there was an intense prejudice and hatred. Probably didn't make it any better that Rome was subjecting them and oppressing them and those kinds of things. Some of the rabbis wrote about how Gentiles were only created to fire the fuel of hell. And so this is a pretty serious problem between Jews and Gentiles. And so when a Jewish teacher says to an audience of Jews, if you won't receive my teaching, God will send me to the Gentiles and bless them with the blessings that you refuse, that was it. You had just thrown down. And, and it was all teeth and eyeballs after that. I mean, it was, you were going for it. The Jews did reject Jesus. Not just the Jews in his hometown of Nazareth that day, but the nation would officially reject him. God then sent the gospel out beyond Israel to the Gentiles. You can follow this progress after Jesus and into the gospel, or into the book of Acts, rather, when God sends the gospel out to the Gentile world, and it's still continuing to this very day. In verse 28, so all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and now you understand why. And, he and they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Exposing hearts is a dangerous business. The gospel message is intense, and it calls for a decision. You cannot remain neutral when Jesus is preached. You must accept Jesus. If you don't, you actively reject Him. You may seem more civilized in your rejection than these Jews at Nazareth. 
but it amounts to the same thing. He is offering life, and if you reject him, you are part of a crowd of humanity seeking to push him away to a place where he will not bother you anymore. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. I'm not sure if this was natural or supernatural. It's an interesting phrase, though, because I think Jesus still does this when the gospel is preached. He passes through the midst of the audience. He's there in their midst among them, giving opportunity for them to be saved and set free. You know, I don't really visualize this, but, uh, so don't think I'm crazy, but you know, sometimes I think in a spiritual sense when we're doing an altar call, we're giving people a chance to respond to the message and to give their hearts and lives to Jesus Christ. I, I almost you know, think of Jesus walking down the aisle and leaving the building, as it were. You know, just, and how, oh, Lord. If you will tarry just a little bit longer, maybe that guy or maybe that gal or, you know, those kinds of things. And it really is an intense moment of decision for people. Today is the acceptable time. Today is the day of salvation. And, and it's, a, it's a picture that really uh, motivates me to think about. You know, I don't know how many todays somebody has or if they even have the rest of today, quite honestly. And so it's an important thing when the gospel is preached. Now, Jesus is acceptable, but he's also rejectable. Now would be a good time to point out a fascinating fact about Jesus' reading from Isaiah. The passage in Isaiah 61 is from verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read verse 2 from the book of Isaiah. Listen carefully. It says, To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. You notice anything different? Jesus quit reading and closed the scroll after he said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, but the verse was not over. It continued saying, and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped at the comma. It's one of the most important, powerful commas ever used in punctuation. It represents now over 2,000 years of time. Jesus declared that his coming inaugurated the acceptable year of the Lord. I'm here, it's here, now's the day of salvation. Come all ye that are weary and heavy laden and I will give you life. Take my yoke upon you, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whosoever will believe and those kinds of things. That's what Jesus is saying. He was referring to his first coming to be the savior of the world by dying on the cross at Calvary. From that time until now, we are still living in the acceptable year of the Lord the time of gospel preaching in which you or anyone else may accept the Lord and experience personal spiritual jubilee. But there is coming the day of vengeance of our God. It's coming after this comma. We know it as the great tribulation, followed by Jesus' second coming to earth. Today will end as a period of time, and it will be followed by a tomorrow of terrible judgment upon the earth, culminating with the Lord's second coming. This is a powerful comma. It describes the age in which we live. Jesus unmistakably is saying, this is an era of salvation by grace through faith. You want to be saved? Come to the cross. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. Today, but the day of vengeance of our God, it is also coming. A day of wrath. And it's a, it's a terrible thing. You read about it in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. You and I live in this time of spiritual jubilee. We experience the joy 
of a relationship with God by accepting Jesus Christ. Let me say a word to you who have accepted the Lord. Would you say your life is jubilant, filled with joy? Is your house jubilation junction? I mean, you know, are you... <laughs> I just, I love this word, you know. Sounds like a children's thing, but it's really important. If your house, if your heart isn't filled with joy, perhaps you've allowed yourself to be taken captive by something again. You know, a lot of Christians, we've been set free, and then we allow things to come back in and hold us captive. Or maybe you're nursing some kind of broken heart by yourself, not asking the Lord to help you by granting you, uh, you know, a spirit of forgiveness and grace. Or maybe you're trusting in material things now, not realizing that it's caused a poverty of faith. It could be for any number of reasons. All I can say this morning, since there's so many of us, if you're not jubilant, it's a problem that you ought to bring before the Lord and say, Lord, I want to have the joy of your salvation. Not the joy of my salvation. The Scripture says it's the joy of God's salvation, a joy unspeakable and full of glory. Not that every event in your life is joyous, not that all of your circumstances are going to be wonderful, but that your heart is going to be filled with the grace and the mercy of God as you walk through this life with the Lord. And so come back to that place if you're not at that place. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ, then you are actively rejecting Him. You're seeking to push Him away and remain hidden in the crowd. I want you to have that image this morning of Him walking by you. Instead of pushing Him away, reach out like the woman who had the issue of blood in the Gospels. If I can just touch Jesus, then I can be healed. The healing that Jesus offers is eternal life, life abundant now and forever. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these things. We, in a sense, Lord, are grieved at the reception that our Lord got in his hometown of Nazareth. Lord, the, the people were so filled with expectation, but their expectations were wrong. And therefore, Lord, they rejected you. And yet, Lord, it, it's not about them that you wrote so much as it is about us in, in this room right now today. And I pray that these words would take hold in our hearts. Lord, uh, we've been talking now for about 40 minutes. And during that time, I've trusted that by your Holy Spirit, you've been ministering to individuals. And Lord, first I want to talk to you about any unbelievers that might be here in the building. I don't know that there are. I'm sure that there might be or must be, Lord. In, in any large group, there's always going to be someone who isn't saved and knows it or thinks they're saved but aren't. Lord, I want to concentrate on that for just a minute and ask the Christians to be praying along these lines. Lord, you're here offering salvation. Today, the scripture is being fulfilled that whosoever will believe in your son can have eternal life. And I want to give that opportunity to anybody who wants to reach out and take it, who wants to lift their hearts and their hands up to you and say, Lord, save me. I have no currency by which I can get into heaven. I'm impoverished. I'm a poor person. I'm blind. I'm miserable, wretched. I need your salvation. 
If that describes you this morning, you're not a Christian and you know it, I want you to raise your hand so that we can pray for you, so that you can receive Jesus Christ into your heart and life. Anyone at all, you're here, you know you're not a Christian, never given your life to the Lord, come to the Lord today. Today is the acceptable time, the scripture says. Today is the day of salvation. We're going to sing a chorus, give you an opportunity to meditate on that, to think about what God is doing in your heart and life. And I'm going to ask you again if you will give your life to Jesus Christ. It's the most important decision that you'll ever make because it affects not just time but eternity. And so let's sing. And Christians, sing and pray and trust the Lord that His Spirit will be here doing the work. We sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. We sing, come, Lord Jesus, come. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, hindering you from coming to the Lord, it's not as important as your eternity. And so I'm going to ask you, are you here and do you want Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Raise your hand so that we can pray for you. Anyone at all in these closing moments. We believe that the Lord is here in this place, ministering to your heart. You might have a tomorrow to accept the Lord. I'm not being overly dramatic, but I know that today you have an opportunity to do that. Anyone at all, you want the Lord. Praise the Lord. Now, Father, I want to thank you for the work of your spirit. I want to ask that your children, Lord, who are here, filled with love for you, Lord, seeing you as an awesome God, a wonderful counselor and a fantastic Savior, that they would reach out to you, Lord, and, and ask for the joy of their salvation and that they would know, Lord, that the things they're struggling with can be rolled onto your shoulders, that you can carry their burdens for them. And that we would leave this place, Lord, freer than we entered. Set free to worship you. Set free to serve you. We thank you for these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's stand together. And as we sing this last chorus, if you'd like prayer, some of our guys will be down here, down front. You're not a believer and, and you, you, know, you still want to come to the Lord, come on down and pray with these guys. They'll share with you about the Lord. You are a believer and you want a point of contact, a point of reference. Hey, I, I prayed on July 4th, 2004 to receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit, to be set free from a bondage that I had fallen into. 
uh, those kinds of things. Maybe you're here and you have a physical ailment. You'd like prayer for that to be healed or to be blessed. Come on down. It's, it's just a, a special time. Come as soon as we begin to sing or any time afterward. May God bless and keep you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to you. Let the world around me fade away. Jesus, draw me close, closer. For I desire to worship and obey Jesus, draw me close, closer, Lord, to